turn together in God's Word to Exodus chapter 34 as we take up a second part to the subject of God's justice. We'll be looking at Belgic Confession Article 1, one aspect of it, and that is God's justice. Let me read that article for us. It's found on page 855 in the back of your hymnals as we look at the truths from Scripture as they're found in the Belgian Confession, particularly tonight on the only God. We confess that we believe in in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Tonight, that matter of one, uh, our confession that God is completely just, as we saw last week, His justice being impartial. Uh, Tonight, we'll be looking at God as avenging, God as punishing, and then God as justifier, just and justifier. One of my fears of looking at God and His justice is that we might have a misrepresentation of God in our minds, that tonight we come away with this sermon and think, wow, God must really hate us. God must really be angry, and he really has uh, a heart that seems very difficult for us to understand. We need to understand this in light of all of what we've said so far. We need to understand that God is a God who exercises all of his attributes in perfect harmony, and he is one who says that he has a perfect love for his people. He's pleased with his people. But we do need to consider the matter that God is also just. He acts justly and will punish unrepentant sinners. Heard an excellent sermon this week that set before me the wonderful nature of God and his delight in his people. And it's good to always keep that balance to remember that God is just and merciful. God is angry with sin, but he is also one who is delighted in his people. And we need to remember that as we come up to this subject. God exercises his justice not because he's an angry, fault-finding deity who just looks to squash people and to bring a wrath and uncontrolled wrath where he loses his temper, we might say. No, he exercises his anger against wickedness in perfect measure. He is a righteous God, and to be a righteous God, he must be a just God. And so tonight, we start in Exodus 34. A bit later, we'll look at Psalm 94. But when uh, Moses asks God to show him his glory, chapter 33 of Exodus, then God comes to him. And I'm taking, picking up there in verse 5 of Exodus 34 of God's holy word. Listen to these words. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children 
and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses, upon hearing this, quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. That's the end of our consideration of who God is. It is that we might worship, that we might worship him rightly, that we might understand who he is insofar as he has revealed himself to us in his word, that we might not take him lightly as though he's just this fleeting thought that every now and again, kind of like our conscience, oh, he, he reminds us that uh, maybe we shouldn't be doing this or maybe we shouldn't be saying that. But in fact, that he is the one over all the world before whom all will stand at the coming day of judgment. When we discuss this subject of God's judgment, we sometimes stumble. We think it's perhaps below God to have such a, such a, a, a view of things. God who punishes seems a bit too human for us. We think, well, that, that's God. If, if God is anything, he's forgiving. That, that, that makes him, that, that, that's what measure, measures him as the most different than us. He can be offended by our sin and then he just forgives. He just forgets. He walks away and says, well, yeah, I know, I know how they are. And we have to remember that God does forgive, but God also promises that he takes sin seriously and he notices all of it. He doesn't miss any of it. He knows what's in our hearts, not only what we do. We think that Anger is bad and punishment is beneath the sovereignty, uh, the sovereign God. And why? Why do we think that way? Well, because we experience anger that is unmeasured, out of control, unjust anger. We see the abuse of authority every day, and we think, well, God wouldn't certainly abuse his authority. He's kind and gentle and just overlooks things because he doesn't, he's not going to be challenged by us. He's sovereign after all. We see distorted expressions of love and we think, well, that's what God is like. He simply overlooks sin. Doesn't it say in the Bible, sin covers over a multitude of wrongs? Yes, it does. It's in Proverbs. But it also says God punishes wickedness and one day he will punish it and destroy it. The wicked will be under punishment eternally. We, as I've said, must not forget that every attribute of God is governed by his perfect righteousness. Last week, I quoted Steve Lawson, a charge of injustice can never be brought against God's just, uh, judicial authority. God never acts in our lives or, towards other, or toward others in an unjust manner. We need to remember that. He never abuses his authority. He is righteous and completely just. God always does what is right in his dealings with mankind. The scripture says he is holy. There is no unrighteousness in him, the psalmist says. No unrighteousness. It's because we don't understand God in his fullness that that we have these thoughts that, well, God's punishment of wickedness seems below him. It's because we don't understand the holiness of God. It's because we don't understand how angry he is against sin because of how it destroys the goodness of his creation, that we we have these thoughts. We stumble over the thought of his anger against sin. 
We have a kinder, gentler God, which is code for a God we like who never would do anything that we disagree with, that we would find excessive. Now we confess that God is good, completely good. That's what the Catechism says. He's completely wise and good. And it also says he's completely just. He's angry with the wicked every day, the psalmist says, Psalm 7. He will punish wickedness. And it will be perfectly just. The wicked do not escape his notice or his judgment. He, as we saw last week, rewards the good that people do. Maybe we're not, as we, just to remind us of what we said last week, maybe we're, we do good and we're not noticed for it or, or it's, uh, the world thinks it evil and calls it evil and persecutes us as a result and we think, well, am I, what am I, why am I doing this? Because God sees and he says he will, he will recognize that in the coming day. But he also rewards the wicked with eternal judgment. R.C. Sproul writes it this way, If God did not punish sin, he would not be just, and if he were not just, he would not be God. And that's it. We have some other being when we distort these attributes, when we distort his nature beyond what Scripture tells us to make it more agreeable to us. That's why it's important for us to come back to the teaching on God's Word. In all of, in all of the, the, uh, the counsel, the whole counsel of God, even the things that we, we, get a little, we get a little uncomfortable with, God says of himself that he's an avenging God. So we look at first this evening. He's an avenger of evil. He will set things right. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, he says this, Vengeance is mine and retribution I will repay. Now, I'd like to invite us to turn to Psalm 94, page 498 in the Bibles there in front of you. Psalm 94, as we look at the words of the psalmist as it pertains to God, the God who is avenging. The psalmist calls upon God to deal with injustice, to take revenge. Listen to these opening verses, the first seven verses of Psalm 94. The Lord giving us these words. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Verse 6, those, those are categories that speak of those who are often subject of, uh, subjects of injustice. Categories of those who are, are, are weak and unable to defend themselves. It's, it's bit, to be thought of perhaps a bit more broadly. Any, any who experience injustice, Lord, you see what is happening to them, to the weak, to the frail. Psalmist is troubled by what he sees around him, the wickedness that he sees. How much more than the holy God who sees wickedness and understand and has declared it cannot exist and stand in his presence. 
We could certainly go on and speak of God's long-suffering in this context, of how He's so patient in the midst of such wickedness that He doesn't completely squash it, but that He is patient, not willing that any, that any whom He has elect should be kept from Him. Remember Jesus' words from last week, the Lord will not forget those who have been persecuted for His sake. He also will not forget what the wicked have done, and He will bring heavy punishment heavy judgment upon those who have attacked him and his people. The psalmist says, don't you see how long? The wicked thinks the Lord does not see. He does not perceive, and they carry on in their wickedness. Paul says to the Thessalonians in their suffering, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Something very important for us as we consider the matter of God's justice. He says this, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. 2 Thessalonians 1, the verses 6 through 10. God is just. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 13, he says he will judge the wicked. When John sees into heaven, he sees the saints who have been persecuted and martyred for their faith. Revelation chapter 6, what he sees is that they are crying out that God would carry out his justice. I saw under the altar... The souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? At the end of the age, God will inflict his judgment on the people, on the wicked. They will not be seen to have gotten away with anything. Chapter 16, we read this, Revelation 16. John hears an angel say this, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Chapter 19, similar in its content, There in heaven, John hears what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. We talked last week briefly about how the government is to represent God in carrying out just judgment, punishing wickedness and rewarding the good. Romans chapter 13, they bear the sword to punish those who do evil, to reward those who do good. The government should represent God in matters in concern for justice. When wickedness is not punished, Government is not representing God rightly. We go back one chapter to Romans 12, 
And there we find a passage that, that explains some of our struggle with God as avenger. Listen to these words, Romans 12, verses 17 to 19. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, <clears throat> live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I want to spend just a few moments looking at those verses because when we hear those opening words of verse 19, never avenge yourselves, we conclude, well, if it's wrong for me to avenge, then it must be wrong for God to avenge. We conclude that vengeance, therefore, is evil and Yet, vengeance, as Sproul says in his book on the character of God, vengeance is an expression of justice. He goes on to say, if vengeance were intrinsically evil, then it would be as wicked for God to exact vengeance as it is for us to seek it ourselves. If it is not evil, why then is it forbidden to us? He says this, when revenge is carried beyond the level of what is just, it is evil. That is, if the punishment is more severe than the crime, then punishment itself becomes a crime, even an act of injustice. If you or I seek our own revenge, the tendency will be to overreact, to enact more than vengeance. We will, be, we will not be satisfied with getting even. We will press to go one up. He goes on to say that's the stuff feuds are made of. The Hatfields and McCoys knew all about self-appointed acts of vengeance. You can read all about that in American history. You, well, if you do this to me, well, I'll make sure that it's worse for you when I retaliate. But when God avenges, God's vengeance is just. He never punishes more severely than the crime deserves. We who have offended His infinite goodness and majesty are deserving of infinite punishment. Studying for this sermon, I was... Pulled the book off my shelf, confronting Old Testament controversies. And one chapter is on divine violence. And the author points out that in the, in the scriptures, there are only three books that don't carry the divine warrior motif, the divine warrior theme that God acts as a, uh, one who carries out justice. Three books. If you start looking through the scriptures, you might imagine what they would be. Song of Solomon, Ruth. The other one, I don't remember. Ecclesiastes, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. But every other book, in some way or, or in some angle, speaks of God as just and the one who will carry out justice. He's a warrior for justice and righteousness. And this is not a character flaw. In fact, it keeps alive our hope for justice in the midst of a crippling and demonic Wickedness, which is all around us. God will set things right. Reading World Magazine, the latest issue recently, and Brad Littlejohn, was, the author, was speaking about why is it that we're so concerned for justice today, so concerned for justice? Why is it that we have to make committees to, to carry out uh, 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 reparations and carry out uh, uh, making things equitable for everyone? And he has an interesting insight. I want to share it with you. He says this, in the wake of the slow death of God, it is no wonder that modern society fearing that there is now no one to see the tears of the oppressed, has taken upon itself the divine burden of trying to rectify every injustice. I think he's right about that. 
Why are we so, got to get even, got to get equitable? Because we don't, we've, we've, reje- we've rejected the idea that there is a, a holy God who is going to uh, uh, carry out justice before whom all will answer. And so we take it upon ourselves. But he goes on to say this, sadly, its failed attempts are liable simply to inflame more resentment and provoke new cycles of vengeance. And that's true, isn't it? We think, well, I'm, we're, we get really in, engaged in this and it, it gets the best of us and we, and we get beyond justice and we go toe-to-toe and it becomes uglier and uglier. And I would submit that this article, this state of our nation, argues for what we're doing right now, and that is having a study of theology proper. Who is God? Why is it important for us to study this? Because when we study this, then we are enabled to live in a way that we can let God be God and have a peace that passes all understanding in the midst of so much that we have no control over. Without good theology, our lives are warped. We take, our, we take to ourselves what God has reserved for himself. Well, coming back to Psalm 94, we haven't covered all those verses yet. Psalmist calls out for God to rise up and judge wickedness, to deal with that which to seeks to destroy his good world and to corrupt his kingdom. Those opening verses, rise up, verse 2. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. They say the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive, verse 7. And here we have set before us what God is like. He will punish the wicked. He sees and he will measure out just judgment upon each one for what he's done. Look at verses 8 to 11. Underst- the Lord speaking now. Understand, O oh, dullest of people. O oh, you who have the least amount of understanding. O oh, the dullest of people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, he is the Lord, knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath, that they are futile. Oh, they want to rise to the heavens, they want to take control of the earth, but God says, no, it will not happen. The psalmist, as we've said, is looking for help. Where does he turn? Verse 16. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? And he says this, If the Lord Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. Psalmist says, if I... If I didn't know where to turn, I, I, would have, 
I would have felt unseen, unheard. I would have, I would have been crushed by the injustice all around me. I would have, I, I would have given up as though I'm, 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 I don't even exist, like I'm living in the land of silence. Isn't that the case when those who are abused, those face, who face injustice, find a listening ear? They're comforted by someone who is willing to listen because in the midst of their experience of injustice or abuse, they, they don't know where to turn. They feel as though they're unseen, invisible. And here we see that God sees and he will act against all injustice, all wickedness, until it's been finally conquered. The last verse of Psalm 94, he will bring back on the wicked their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. They'll never get away with evil, they say in verse 7. The Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive, and yet the psalmist says, oh no. No, God sees, and he will judge justly. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, for he is a consuming fire, writes the preacher in Hebrews. Now we could look at many more texts, but I want to move to our second point. God is punishing Steve Lawson writes this, because God is a just God, he cannot go back on his word. He said he would administer punishment on law-breaking sinners for their rebellious disobedience to divine law. This aspect of divine righteousness is known as his punitive justice. We need to understand something. God is just. He is righteous. He cannot make a law and say, I will punish those who break the law and then fail to do so. To fail to execute the punishment when the law is violated would mean that God is not righteous, not just. God sets a penalty in the beginning, doesn't he? He says, obey and you will live. Disobey and you will face judgment. Or does he say that? He says that in the garden to Adam and Eve. He says, eat of the tree of life, or eat of all the trees, rather, of, of the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. And on the day that you do eat of it, you will surely die. He lays that out. And what do our first parents do? And we in them partake of that tree, thinking, well, it is good to the eye. It's pleasing to the eye. God's going to overlook this because he will certainly go along with our estimation of things that we can partake, we can disobey, and he'll just dismiss that. And in fact, he does not. On that very day, they died spiritually, and they were then subjects of physical death. Death entered the experience of all men because of that sin. And all sinned in them, Paul says in Romans 5, verse 12. What's set before the tree of life? You remember, don't you? The angel with the flaming sword saying that no one may partake of life who has disobeyed me. They will be struck down, all wicked, which indeed were all those descendants of Adam and Eve, us. God promised, however, that a deliverer would come, one who would face this sword of judgment. This one would come, 
And he said, I don't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He doesn't come and say, well, it's all of grace. I'm here to tell you that God is now opening a, a, a new door for you. He's now saying, it doesn't matter how you live because I'm here. And, and so live as you like. No, that's a misrepresentation of God's grace. Misrepresentation of God's righteousness. He demands that we obey. Christ came to be born under the law. Take that curse upon himself as he was there upon the tree bearing our curse. The Lord God redeems a people for himself. Listen to those verses 12 to 15. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. There's that aspect of judgment for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous. And all the upright in heart will follow it. God disciplines. And the psalmist says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline. Blessed is the one who learns from that discipline. The law still speaks. The moral law. These are the commandments summarized in the Ten Commandments of how we are to live. That we might know what is pleasing to the Lord. But in this, we don't save ourselves in our law-keeping. We identify ourselves as those who are in covenant with God. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and desire to live for their heavenly Father, even as Christ lived for his Father in heaven. The wicked, the unrepentant, will be cut off. But the Lord, the Lord will send the righteous one, to deliver those who will trust in him. We're warned of the end of wickedness in the scriptures, not that we would despair, but that we would turn to God's provision. He is not only just, but justifier, providing the way of reconciliation. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3, verse 21. He's not saying that the law no longer has a place, but it is that which points out our sin because we have not kept it, cannot keep it. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they spoke of the need to obey if there is life to be granted. And that righteousness of God is in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God that is ours through faith in him. That is for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Those who are justified are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, as a sacrifice to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who, had, who has faith in Jesus. Sproul again, summarizing, says this, God's justice was preserved in the midst of the triumph of his grace. This God whom we, before whom we live is just and justifier. He is righteous and gracious, merciful. The day is coming, however, when every person will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ to give account of his thoughts and motives and actions. 
It's a sobering thought. The scriptures teach us, however, that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the righteousness of God. As we believe in him, confessing our sins, his righteousness is credited to our account that God sees us as righteous in him. And because of him, God does not forsake his people. There is that word in Psalm 94. The Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. He will provide. He is the one who is to be glorified. For he is just and gracious. This is the God who saves. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do marvel at your nature and your being. The more we learn of you, the more we learn of how we can live then in keeping with your commands, your sovereign control, your perfections, put all of our fears at rest and our scrambling to set things right is not in our power, but you see, you act, and in your time, you will bring final judgment. But today is yet that day of salvation where we go forth and call people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that in him they might be reckoned righteous, that in him they might not fear the judgment, that they might then want to live for you. Lord, help us to be those who have concern for justice, but don't take upon ourselves the call to avenge. Rather, to speak for those who are weak, to speak words, upright words, which pierce the heart, call people to recognize sin and to cry out, what must we do to be saved? Then to have opportunity to proclaim Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Help us to be faithful, Lord. Help us not to be fretful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.